Namo etasa bhagavatu arhatu asamasambhutasa. Namo etasa bhagavatu arhatu asamasambhutasa. Namo etasa bhagavatu arhatu asamasambhutasa. Pudangdamang sangang So in our afternoon um, practice session, I went to a place I've never been before. So one of the things about the garden that I find just remarkable is this is that is, I've been here five years, and every single day for five years I go into the garden. And, and, and if I want to find a new place, I can always find a new place. And today I found a whole huge new place. I mean like a completely, totally huge new place. And... I was in this kind of overhang in this canyon, and when the wind kicked up, the sparrows came out, and I've never seen them. I've never seen them do this before. They were flying with the wind, but they were they were like flying with the wind and like going up into crevices and like falling out of the crevices and coming out into the wind. And this was like going on for like two hours, and there were like four hundred birds in the sky above me. I. <laughs> And this is like 10 minutes away from here <laughs> on my bike. I mean, it's just like, oh, just spectacular, just spectacular. And because of the orientation of the canyon, I was completely out of the wind. And when the rain fell, I was completely protected. So it was like sweet, sweet spot, you know, sweet, sweet spot. And so, you know, the thing about the practice and the thing about my own inquiries is, is that there's this, this dropping into this mystery, this magic, the, the kind of like the sense of the perfection of the present. And, and seeing that as something which is pervasive, as something which is actually part of nature and part of me. You know, that that actually is not just an external reality, that's also an internal reality. And then, and then there's the kind of looking at the other part of reality, which is that there's room for improvement, you know? You know, there's all of these places that I'm working on, I'm still working on them, and I look in the world and it's like, there's a lot going on in this world right now that has room for improvement, you know? When we look at the 97% of the wealth was held in 7% of the people in this country, and we look at um, what's going on with uh, wars, we look what's going on with the climate uh, disruption and the crisis that that's catapulting us to, you know, we've got a very narrow kind of window of time frames of what we're working with in terms of shifting economy that's based on oil and driven by the uh, profiteering of the oil companies and turn it into something which is actually sustainable, that actually life as we know it will be able to sustain on. And so we have this, this, this big perspective, which is, is that there's perfection in the present moment and that that's a reality that pervades 
And then there's the reality of the kinds of um, the work, internally, externally, that is asking for response. You know, it's not. It doesn't feel like it's 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 responsible, responsive for me just to relax into the bliss of the perfection and not attend to the internal and external world that is that is asking, crying, calling for a response. And so navigating these two the perfection and the places that need work and doing it in a way where we're grounded we're processing the kinds of feelings that come up we are clear about the path and we're making a skillful and right effort internally in relationship in community in the world what does that look like? So when I think about the Eightfold Path as an intricative path, where it's intricative, where it's dealing with our own internal world, it's dealing with our world of relationships, it's dealing with our community, and it's dealing with trying to frame an, uh, a world that moves towards something which is sustainable for all beings, not just for a narrow window of a few, you know, that opens the gates, that actually starts looking at, if we're going to make this place sustainable, what are the kinds of things that are issues that we need to pay pay attention to? You know, where do we need to focus our attention? So, if we take a step back, and we look at the Eightfold Path as it was described in the time of the Buddha, you know, one of the things that we can see is, is that our, our culture has evolved from a hierarchical and traditional society to a modern society, and now we're in a postmodern society. And each of these times of cultural evolution were, had different characteristics to it. And without wanting to impute value about good and bad, we can just notice that in a traditional society there was a lot of emphasis on loyalty and duty and honor and hierarchy. And um, the society had a way of of, um, structuring itself so that people in privilege had different rules that they followed than common people. And um, there wasn't a sense of... Um, and, and so, you know, your status and your privilege oftentimes was determined by birth and passed on through birth to the next generation. And in that sense of uh, traditional society, it was really, really important to protect and to serve the leader. That was a value that was really held in high esteem. And in when um, we became uh, industrialized, we moved from a traditional society more to a modern society. 
And in that modern society, the things started to shift. There began to be a little bit more interest in, in egalitarian uh, issues, um, women's rights, people of color, LGBT issues. The laws were not so structured around um, people of privilege, though it still happens, but less so. It was more the laws were meant to be for everybody, independent of how much money you had. And, and there was a lot of advocacy for people who were uh, often underrepresented or uh, marginalized in the past. And one of the things that happened in the, in the modern society is, is, is that a, a rural agrarian society ended up shifting to coming into living predominantly in the cities and working uh, not on the land, but in um, jobs that were disconnected from the land. So our sense of disconnect from the land was really highly accentuated at that time of shifting from a traditional society to a modern society. And accompanying that shift, there was a massive um, kind of uh, alienation and discontentment that people across economic strata and educational strata experienced. And it was for the first time ever that there was this kind of deep sense of despondency that people started to feel. Uh, a lack of purpose, a lack of location, a lack of knowing who they were, a lack of having um, something that they could really connect to and value. The, the village was torn apart, the clan system was torn apart, and so people were not only dislocated from the land, but they were also dislocated from uh, groups, family groups, social groups. And uh, alongside all of this, then like uh, consumerism and uh, exploitation of sexuality and drugs and addiction and uh, accumulation of wealth for no purpose other than status. All of these kinds of things became uh, highly accentuated as a way of uh, a strategy to deal with this pervasive discontent that had come from a massive dislocation from self, society, and land. And then we're in a postmodern society where there is an interest in uh, not um, splitting the sense of spirituality and physicality or sexuality and spirituality, where there's an interest in, in, in seeing how our spirituality can be experienced in all of these different components rather than compartmentalizing and feeling that it, as it was felt or expressed uh, in the traditional society, that spirit and body were somehow in opposition to each other, and that sexuality and spirituality could never coexist, and that the, you know, the land was something to be, to be conquered. It was something to, be, uh, to, to have some sense of... of um, well, in certain people, with other traditional people, they were very deeply and intimately connected with the land. So depending on which culture in a traditional society you're looking at. So here we are, having come from 
the Eightfold Path that was first described in a traditional context and having navigated from a traditional to a modern to a postmodern society that in, in many ways is a society that is working with some very um, acute issues and crises. And so when we look at the Eightfold Path, we need to also interpret it not only from the languaging of where it was given, which was partially contextual, but find by a traditional society, and see what is needed in our current context. So, looking at all of that, when we look at the Eightfold Path, oh, and then I need to mention that in a traditional society, um, when we, we moved into the modern era, reason became the new religion. And so everything was subjugated uh, to, to be in deference to the intellect. And things like, um, you know, intuition or uh, all of that was not as, as considered as, in, as important or as powerful as reason. So the, the intellect and the importance of questioning authority and the use of personal will and effort became the mechanism by which people then increased their status. So in a traditional society, things shifted simply um, very slowly because it was passed down through generations. You didn't really have the ability, once you were born into a certain uh, social standing, to shift it very well or easily. But in a modern society, it was very clear that those values shifted and that people felt that they could shift things by their own efforts. But one of the consequences of shifting things by their own efforts is, is that our sense of efforting has gotten so accentuated that for most of us, and I've spoken to a few of you, you know, the, 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 what the issue of right effort is, is, is it's very challenging to just bring the right amount of effort to a particular task because it has been for for a number of hundreds of years now where an, an enormous amount of how we are the way we are and who we are as we are has come because of our capacity to exert individual will. So that muscle has gotten so that it's a little bit out of balance. And when it makes an effort, it tends to over-effort and, and, and grip. And so we, we're not often able to make the, the, the effort that is the least amount possible to do the task without the gripping effect of, of activating our personal will as, the, as the, like the proprietary agency that's making it happen. Yeah. So this is like the cultural context that we've come from. Yeah. And it's really helpful to keep that in perspective when we look at the Eightfold Path. Because we need to understand that the Eightfold Path, in its classical interpretation, was given to, into a traditional society. And we're not functioning in a traditional society. You know? Right now, it's really, it doesn't work for people to, uh, to, just quest, to just go ahead and listen to the authority. There needs to be a sense of um, a, a willingness to collaborate, a, an ability to input ideas. Uh, there has to be a sense of that the authority has to be able to uh, 
walk the path in order for them to have the credibility to gain the respect of people. It's a very different context than the context a traditional society was operating in. So when we look at the Eightfold Path of right view, right intention, right thought, right effort, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right concentration, and right mindfulness, in a, in a traditional context, right view or connected view was the view that there are causes and effects, that there is the there's benefit in being generous, there's the benefit in taking care of one's parents, and that is on like the relative level, that all of those things are actually operational. And on a, on a super-mundane right view, it's the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, it's the understanding that, that there is suffering that we experience in this world, that we experience it in our body, we experience it in not having things that we want and having things that we don't want. We experience it in aging, we experience it in death, and we experience it in the, in, in the clinging to the aggregates of body and form and feeling and perception and sankara volitional formations and consciousness. That this experience of suffering is a characteristic of existence until there is the capacity to see the cause of that grasping and to release that grasping. And the path, the Eightfold Path, is the path that is considered the prescription of how to navigate this pervasive suffering so that we release it. In a traditional context, right intention or right thought has three specific components to it. The intention of renunciation, the intention of goodwill, and the intention of harmlessness. So renunciation is one of the teachings that, um, that runs contrary to our modern world value system of accumulation. Of, of seeing our, our self-worth in terms of how much that we have. And so renunciation is letting go of what is not needed in terms of things, letting go of, of striving for position simply in order to eke out a, uh, a place of status, and letting go of the identification of me and my uh, with the thoughts and the feelings that we have. When we look at uh, connected effort in terms of a, a classic way of understanding it, it's the effort to do what's wholesome and develop it to fulfillment. And it's the effort to remove or diminish what is unwholesome and allow them to come into cessation.
And so we're interested in developing compassion. We're interested in developing a heart of equanimity. We're interested in cultivating contentment. We're interested in um, making do with what is. And we're looking at diminishing um, greed, diminishing lust, diminishing ill will, diminishing aversion, diminishing competitiveness and jealousy and envy, and having more experiences of uh, relaxation and peacefulness in a clear and steadied attention. And we can see that these things apply inwardly in terms of the way that we're relating to our own body, heart, and mind. But they're also very um, directive in terms of the kinds of of, um, behaviors that we engage in with each other. When we look at speech from a classical perspective, we're interested in speaking what is truthful, what is harmonious and gentle, useful and timely. And we can see that, you know, just in observing the way we have been together, that when the speech is useful, when it's timely, when it's kind, it has a certain impact. And even something as, as trivial as, you know, speaking at the wrong time, you know, it, 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 has, it, it shifts the sense of the container, you know. So we can see the impact on our minds and we can see the impact on around us about the way that we speak. When we look at action, it's about keeping the precepts. And I recognize that, you know, the first night I'm still dealing with compression, concussion brain and my discernment is not that great. But it wasn't correct when we were going to not have a limited uh, snack of like just rice cakes and tahini or something to have the eight precepts. Because by keeping the eight precepts, one of the things about keeping the eight precepts is the, is the understanding is, is that we don't eat after midday. So what I should have done if my discernment was operating correctly is encourage us to keep the five precepts and then bolster up the others rather than keep the eight precept and diminish the sixth one, you know. So my discernment is not so sharp and so that was a, an error on my part. So my apologies about that. But the, the point of the precepts is to have a kind of clear sense of a container of what is within uh, the uh, parameters of integrity and what is not. And certainly in our lifestyle, there's lots of things where we can have a decision about what is correct or a guiding principle. And then there's times when we, when we go across that edge. But in like, for example, in my situation... There are times when I deliberately do that, and yet I acknowledge it. I deliberately make an acknowledgement of what it is that I have done. So I'm clear about the overall container that I'm holding, and I'm clear about the times that I step over the line, so that it maintains the integrity of the container. When we look at livelihood, We're looking at a livelihood that engages in non-harm. We're looking at a livelihood that doesn't engage in any of the classical practices that were recommended as not being skillful, which include um, 
weapons trade, using being involved in weapons or uh, poisons or raising animals for slaughter or the sex industry. Any of those professions have um, too much harm connected to them for them to be considered right livelihood. When we're looking at concentration, the Buddha was very clear and very uh, frequently describing that the classical um, description of right concentration is to be able to allow attention to absorb and to experience a unification of mind and to move the mind through the various different states of concentration. And, and so that ability to collect, that ability to sustain focus, that ability to sustain thought, and then that ability to release thought and to experience the, the rapture of a mind that's unified, and then to experience the, the subtle agitation of, of that kind of bliss, and to let the, 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 the agitation release and have the mind move into equanimity, and then to release more and more of the coarseness until the mind is focused on not objects but on uh, space and then on formlessness, which are the kind of exalted states that can be experienced in concentration. And then in, in the, the classical teachings on mindfulness, that's to, to be present with and practice with the four foundations of mindfulness, to practice with uh, feeling our body, to practice with knowing feelings as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. The practice of experiencing the things that are going on in our mind without having a judgment about them being good or bad. And the ability to use various different frameworks to work with what's going on in our mind so that we have more perspective, like using the framework of hindrances or using the framework of the um, factors of awakening or using the framework of the Four Noble Truths or the aggregates as a way of being able to see what's happening and get more perspective in space so that our mind is not solidified around the object but there is balance and peace and skillfulness and a leaning into the awareness of what's arising rather than the object itself. So in a classical context, there is a lot here that's interdevelopmental. You know, that if we sit on the cushion and we practice, then from that all good things are going to result. From an intricative perspective, it's not as if that's not true, but it's as if, in my sense, it's like there are other things that need to be added in to make sure that this comes into fullness. So, you know, at the time of the Buddha, there were not seven billion people on the planet that he was speaking to, you know. And they weren't navigating the kinds of uh, crises that we are navigating now, where we are at a, a very um, a clear brink, where if we're not going to shift things in a remarkably short period of time, then it's, the, the predictions are from uh, 97% of all climate scientists that what is going to happen 
is going to be not sustainable for life as we know it. Okay? So when we look at the Eightfold Path as given in the time of the Buddha, where those kinds of global crises were not ones that were being navigated, it was in a traditional context. And we are now fast forward into a postmodern world with an awful lot of people and an awful lot of stuff that's bubbling and percolating in our world that is asking for attention. So let's see what happens when we go through this Eightfold Path from an intricative perspective and what we come up with. When we look at view from an intricative, awakened perspective, the way I see that is, is, is that my practice is not only about what's arising in my own mind and body, but it's also about the relationships that I have and the way in which I am relating to the larger world and configuring and understanding and shaping the larger world. So the view doesn't dismiss the Four Noble Truths, but the Four Noble Truths is not just limited to old age, sickness, and death within my own body, but it's old age, sickness, and death within my body, within the, and the, and the world. Okay? So that my view is not just oriented internally, it's not just the internal domain that I'm focused on, but I'm opening up so that it's also clearly seeing what's going on around me. When I look at an intricative way of relating to right thought and right intention, then for me, the way I see that is is that my practice includes all of this. It's not only about what's happening here, but my practice is about how is it that I can engage in the world to speak, to share, to illuminate, to support, to create safety for others and to move us towards the direction that feel like it sustains life rather than colludes with or ignores the fact that we're moving in a direction where if it doesn't shift very quickly, that is not going to be an assumption that we're going to be able to continue with. Yeah. So right intention is how does my practice relate to the whole? And how am I able to not only self-regulate with my own self as the parameter, but how do I self-regulate keeping the whole in mind of what do I need to do to speak, to act, to show up, to educate, to present, to convey, to embody, to live, to model a way of being that moves in one direction rather than the other. What does that look like?
How can I collaborate? Who can I collaborate with? Where do I need to focus my attention? When I look at intricative, awakened effort, Certainly, it has to do with the mind states that are arising. So I can't ever dismiss my practice as being fundamental and core, primary to this whole arising. But the effort is also around what is it that I can do to support community. And not just Buddhist community, but dear community and skunk community and neighborhood community. And living in Colorado Springs... This is the home of the religious right, okay? Focus on the family national headquarters is here. Jim Daly lives somewhere in the town, you know? And in the past, you know, I would have said, like, these are other people, you know? I have nothing in common with them. I have no reason to associate with them, and I will never, ever go and talk to them and with all of this that's arising it's like for some reason I'm here in Colorado Springs and they are too and maybe we can actually I can actually speak to them and see if there's ways that we can collaborate Jim Daly has a radio show with two million people that listen to it every day that's a big reach you know So rather than seeing this person or these people as the other, it's like, how can we make the picture big enough where we can look at the things that we agree on and talk about that together and see if it's possible that he would be willing or interested to use his platform for education on a common theme. It would have never ever occurred to me in a million years to think like that before. So, certainly right speech has to do about being honest and being useful and being timely and being appropriate. But when we look at it in terms of this bigger picture, it also is about speaking up about these things that are so difficult to talk about because it's so overwhelming. And calling people out when you hear people saying something that you know is simply not true. You know? What does that look like? You know. In the past, it would have been really easy just to be quiet. You know. It's not confrontational. It's polite. Nothing about it is too scary. But it's like, right now, it feels like to not call people out is risky. Actually. It's colluding with something that we need not to collude with. So it's asking of us a kind of courageousness in showing up in the world that I have not experienced this in this kind of way before.
So when we look at right action and keeping the precepts, okay, so certainly, you know, the precept of non-harming has a lot in it. But when we look at what's going on with the oil industries and the way that they are kind of like, um, I don't know what the right word is, wrecking the planet and profiting from it, and um, uh, and the political system is is so far supporting that, then, you know, what is right action in terms of that? You know, what does that look like in terms of our capacity to stand up, to speak up, to make choices that are actually shifting our own livelihood or our own standard or educating people around or getting involved and engaged in this thing which is actually not about how much we're driving but about uh, a kind of corporate machine that's driving the economy for its own economic um, gain irregardless of the complete and total devastation that it's causing. You know, what do we need to do? To start shifting this so that it actually is congruent with our deepest understanding of what is harmless. So right livelihood has to do with the way that we earn a living. And I can also sense that it also has to do with the way that we keep money, spend money. And an awful lot of investment is invested in the oil industry. And so, you know, if there's an interest to look at this, there's a a possibility to see, you know, do I have my savings account that is supporting the oil industry? Can I get it out of that? Is my retirement fund invested in the oil industry? Can I get it out of that? Is the communities that I'm invested in, involved with, have money that's invested in, can I get that out of that? You know, can we start moving the money away from what is financing destruction of this planet? What does that look like? So, when we look at concentration from an integrative and awakened perspective, you know, one of the things that we need to understand, particularly in our modern world, where there is such an unbelievable amount to do and to process and to think about and to synthesize and to deal with, that our systems are constantly on the brink of overwhelm and overload all of the time that what is, it's really important that we learn how to just, um, to, to take breaks, to drop, and to drop into something where we're not thinking about the enormous complexity, and we're just actually with something very simple. And for this reason, I feel infinitely grateful 
that I'm here next to the garden of the gods where no matter how activated or agitated or distraught that I get picking these things up, there's a place where I can go where I can release it. You know, the rocks can hold me holding it until the tension releases out of my system and I drop into that place where there are no problems, you know. So we have to find ways of letting the burdens release and coming back to that place of simplicity that's actually huge. It's a simplicity that's embracing because that, that capacity to do that is, is restorative and healing and enables the, the human to extend into complexity that otherwise would not have been possible. We have to drop. We have to go back into simple focus, just one thing we're focusing on. And then mindfulness in an intricative, awakened perspective includes all of this. Includes our body, hearts, and minds. Includes our psychological development in terms of... Includes our sense of what's happening in our social sphere, our communities, and the world. It's not just narrow in one dimension. It's open. Now, I am not um, somebody who predicts future. I don't do that. I don't have any ability to do that. I don't do that. But I do have a lot of confidence that when we practice well, when we practice correctly, when we practice with integrity, when we practice with result, blessings come. And the blessings that come, I also have no real capacity to name the extent of them. How big they are, how far-reaching they are, how impactful they are. And I know for myself that there have been so many times when I've been in situations that seemed absolutely, categorically impossible. That it was insoluble, impossible, it couldn't possibly shift. And yet, the practice has shown me time and time and time and time and time and time again that that perspective is often a narrow perspective, it's not a wide perspective. And so, to practice wholeheartedly, fully, intricately for self for immediate community, for global community. I have confidence that that's the right path.
And we absolutely need each other in order to do this. There is no way we're going to do this alone. So today, when I was sitting in that canyon and watching the birds playing with the wind, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds playing with the wind. And they were all going so fast. And not one hit another one. I can remember that I can take nourishment from what's around me. The rocks and the wind and the birds and the flowers and the deer, and the skunk, and the squirrels, and the little things that grow in impossible places. And the big, spectacular things that create shelter for so many. And just know that the path is one step at a time. Being present with what arises. Responding as I'm able with the resource that I have. With what is arising. One step at a time. So we can close here with 